0: For whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, once again it is our desire to worship you. We realize that we could not know you or know details about you if you had not revealed yourself to us in this written word we call the Bible. And so, Lord, we come today with hungry hearts knowing that every word in this book is truth and that every word reveals to us something about you. Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to draw near today by making a full application of the cross of Christ to our life. Not only was it the place where atonement was made, but it is the place where sin dies. And I pray, Lord, today that we would learn how to apply that cross to our life today. And every day, in Jesus' name, amen. The crucifixion is not just the beginning point for the Christian life. No doubt it is the beginning point. We have to come to the cross. We have to understand that God made one way for sinners to be reconciled to himself. It is not through prayer. It is not through sacrifice. It is not through baptism. It is not through good deeds. It is only through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And that happened at the cross, And that is the beginning point of the Christian life. We must come to the cross seeing Jesus as the sacrifice that we need for our salvation. But it is also to be the daily practice of every Christian. In other words, the Christian life is the crucified life. Can I say that again? I want to tie those two things together for you in your mind the Christian life is the crucified life. Let me explain. Think about this. Even before Jesus was crucified, he said plainly on two different occasions that his followers would have to take up the cross to follow him. He said it first in Luke nine twenty three when he said, "...if any man will come after me, let him deny himself..." and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now obviously, obviously the disciples at that time didn't understand the full impact of what that meant because Jesus had not went to the cross, but remember the cross was not theoretical to them. It was a vivid and concrete image of death. So when Jesus said take up your cross, they knew what it meant to take up a cross. Historians estimate that Rome performed over 30,000 crucifixions during the lifespan of Jesus Christ. And hundreds of those happened in Israel. So to take up the cross was to begin the death walk to pay the ultimate cost for your sins. Remember we talked about last week how that Jesus' road to Calvary began at the, at the pavement, at the place of beating where the crossbeam would have been placed upon his shoulders. And he and the other criminals would have walked through town outside the gate up the hill to Golgotha. And so to take up the cross was that final walk towards death in payment for a choice that you had made. In fact, so intimidating and repulsive was the cross in the mind of Jesus' audience that, that when he wanted to weed out the real disciples from the fair weather followers, he said in Luke 14, Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so just think about what Jesus is saying to his disciples in preparation for the crucifixion. It is about the cross. You have to go to the cross. You have to take up a cross daily to follow Christ. Boy, he thinned out the crowd with that one, I can tell you. From that day forward, many stopped following him. So crucifixion is not just Christ, but uh, It's not just Christ, but it is a requirement for our being a disciple. The crucifixion was not just where Christ was to pay for our sins, but there is some aspect of that crucifixion that is supposed to be lived out in your daily life and in my daily life. Think about this verse in that context. In Philippians 3.10, Paul said that I may know him, Jesus, the power of his crucifixion, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Paul said the Christian life is not just knowing the power of the resurrection, it's not just knowing the fellowship of the sufferings, but it is being conformed to the death of Christ. Death is a very unpleasant thing for you and I. Crucifixion is, is not pleasant. It is painful. It is disturbing. It's something that we don't want to do. Just as Jesus prayed in that garden, if it was possible for the cup to pass from him, uh, but he, he resigned himself to the Father's will, our flesh, ourselves do not want to go to that cross. We do not want to be crucified. But this is exactly what it means, that, 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 that Paul is sharing with us his confession of what the cross means in his life. But we ask the question how does this work since not every follower of Christ is literally crucified like he is? Well, that's what Paul is explaining in this text. Let me just give you some background around this the occasion for the writing of this letter to the churches at Galatia. It's that they have been misled into a form of legalism. It begins in the very introduction. Paul says, who, who has perverted you? Who has confused you? Who, who has led you astray so soon from following Christ? If I could simplify the issue for you, I would say it this way. They, they started out right with faith in Christ, but, but they were now trying to live the Christian life in their own power by keeping the law. So they started right, they knew that they couldn't save themselves, so they put their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone to save them. But now that they are saved, they're trying to apply the law and they're saying, hey, if I can do this and I can do that and I don't do this and I don't do that, then I will be a good Christian. Characteristically, legalism is trying to reduce the Christian life to a set of rules of do's and don'ts. When we talk about legalism, that's what we're talking about. It is taking the Christian life, which is a relationship, and trying to reduce it down to a list of do's and don'ts that you can carry out in your own strength if you have enough self-discipline. As this is not the intended way of Christ, it becomes very, very difficult. If you've ever tried it, and many Christians have, because that's our programming Our programming is we have to do something. We have to contribute something. Well, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself, but it's just not fair that Jesus does it all, and he saves me forever even when I'm bad and I don't do right. That just doesn't make sense to me in my human uh, cognitive thinking, and so I have to contribute something. I have to do something. I have to have a list of rules to do and a list of rules to don't, and when I can keep those, then I, I know that I'm being a good Christian. In my experience, trying to live this way usually leads to one of three things. Failure, hypocrisy, or judgmentalism. Failure, hypocrisy, or judgmentalism. Failure, it's just too hard to maintain. It's just too hard to maintain. If the Christian life depends upon my good behavior, then I failed the first week. And you have too. You might have made it two weeks, maybe three, but we've all failed. And when a person is honest and they're trying to live it on their own in their own strength and they fail, pretty soon they just give up. Who can do this? Nobody can do this. I'll just quit. I'll just, I'll just drop out. And how many Christians have started off well, but they had it in their mind that they had to maintain this certain behavior. And when they couldn't do it, they felt like eternal failures. And they didn't want the shame and the burden of it anymore. So they would just withdraw. Can't do this. Failure. Legalism will lead to that. Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is you hold the standard. The standard must be right. I know that these rules are good and these are right and you shouldn't do this and you should do this, but I just can't live those things. But I won't abandon the standard. And so hypocrisy is saying this is the way to live the Christian life when I know in my own heart I'm not living up to those rules. Oh, by the way, I've spent some time there too in hypocrisy. This is the standard and I couldn't live up to my own standard the third avenue that it usually will possibly lead to is judgmentalism if you are the rare bird who has enough self-discipline or you don't have enough self-awareness to live up to your customized list of standards but in doing so it is very very hard and it takes its toll on you And it causes you to begrudge those who do not impose the same restrictions upon themselves. So you are bare-knuckling, white-knuckling, gritting your teeth. I'm going to live it by these rules. I'm not going to do that. And I am going to do this. And even if I don't like it, well, look at that brother. He claims to be a Christian, and he's not doing that thing. Well, he i tell you what, he's good for nothing. I'm telling you, that's human nature. That's in us. And if you're trying to live the Christian life the way the Galatians were trying to live the Christian life, you're going to end up either in failure, hypocrisy, or judgmentalism. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that there were some who had gotten themselves to that place. If you look back in chapter 2, at verse number 4, he says that because false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. That's that judgmental crowd. That's those folks who are saying, well, Paul's not living it the way that Peter says to live it, and we're going to go in there and we're going to spy out their bondage. And they had made a mess in the church at Galatia. By the way, that, that, that did not die out in the first century. It's alive and well today. Legalism thrives in Christianity. And there are many people who who struggle with it. But can I tell you this? The cross is the key to the Christian life. The cross is the key to the Christian life. Paul spends part of his letter saying, it's not the law that saves you. The law cannot save you. If the law could have saved you, there would be no cross. The cross was so bad, God would not have submitted his son to that if he could have made a law that would have saved you. He gets theological and explains to them what's the purpose of the law. The law is like a schoolmaster. It brings you to Christ. It shows you where you fall short and makes you painfully aware of the fact that you could never live it and that you need an imputed righteousness, a transferred righteousness, a grace-given righteousness from God. I like what Billy Graham said. Billy Graham said, God's plan was that through the cross our old nature would be crucified and the power of the Holy Spirit would be unleashed to change our hearts and lives. Through the cross. I'm telling you, the cross is to be central to our lives every single day. We could say that Galatians 2.20 is Paul's confession of the power of the cross in his own life. Paul, who has been walking with Christ for some time now, who came out of a legalistic background and has entered into the liberty that is in Christ, he has done that through the cross, through the crucifixion, and he is confessing that to others. And he's saying, let me tell you where the power is for you to live the Christian life. It is not in your ability to keep the law. It is in the cross of Christ. The Apostle Paul indicates in this text that there are three options for living the Christian life. Option number one is in verse 20, that is the faith option. That's the only recommended option. I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the only recommended option for living the Christian life, and it is going to be the focus of our study. Option number two is in verse 21, and that is the frustrating option. Paul said, I do not frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness become by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. This option forfeits the gift of God's grace. It it, it opts for a works-based or performance-based option. And so that's very frustrating because I can't do it in my own works. I fail, I fail, I fail. If I don't have grace, then I am going to be frustrated as a Christian. Option number three is what we read in the first verse of chapter 3, and that is the foolish option. Oh, foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who tricked you? Who deceived you? This option drops the God factor out of the equation after salvation. Right? Think about it. The fact is, the only person who ever lived the Christian life, the only person who ever lived the Christian life is Christ. say, I lived a Christian. No, you don't. You can't. The only person who ever lived the Christian life was Christ. He's the only one who could say, I have done all those things which please the Father. He's the only one who said, I always deferred my will to the Father. He's the only one who could say he had never sinned. Christ is the only one who ever lived the Christian life. And if you and I factor God in for salvation, but after we get saved, we kind of drop him from the equation and we just take off trying to do it on our own. We are missing the point of the crucifixion. Let me summarize it this way. We must not frustrate this By switching from a grace based approach to a performance based approach after we get saved, by foolishly forgetting that Christ did it all for us on the cross. You see, that's what happens. We start out in grace. I know the only way I can be saved is by receiving the gift. But at some point we switch from the grace-based approach and we go to this performance-based approach. Well, God loves me because I go to church. God loves me because I stop cussing. God loves me because I stop smoking. God loves me because I fill in the blank. Do you understand? That's performance-based and that is not the way the Christian life is supposed to be lived. The crucifixion must not become a distant memory of the past It must not be something we just think about once or twice a year, but it must be a daily practice in the presence. That that crucifixion must have a daily application in my life. That is to say, just as we entered the Christian life by faith in Christ's crucifixion, we must also live the Christian life by faith in Christ's crucifixion. It is a faith life. The Apostle Paul lays it all out for us in verse 20. Galatians 2.20. Let's read that one more time. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you notice, there are three clauses in this sentence separated by colons. Clause number one, I am crucified with Christ, colon. Clause number two, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, colon. Clause three, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, period. These colons are used to separate independent clauses that could stand alone as sentences but provide a sharper and fuller explanation of the subject when they are joined together. And so these independent clauses are attached together so that you and I can understand what the full impact and effect of the crucifixion is. I want to give you a word for each of these clauses that will serve as our outline. For Clause 1, the word is reckon. Reckon, R-E-C-K-O-N. Clause 2, the word is resurrected. And Clause 3, the word is reciprocated. Reckon, resurrected, and reciprocated. Step 1 in drawing near to God through the crucifixion is to reckon yourselves... To be crucified with Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. He says in Clause 1, I am crucified with Christ. Not I am trying to be crucified. Not I am crucifying myself. He is saying I am crucified with Christ. It is an accepted fact for him. It is a lived reality. Now I don't use the word reckon because I'm a hillbilly from Appalachia. And we like the word reckon. You want to go to town? I reckon. I use the word because it is actually the word that Paul used when he was explaining this concept to the Romans. The word reckon is actually an accounting word. At least the Greek word that is translated into the word reckon is an accounting word. It means to count, to calculate, to compute It means to add it up in the right column, to put it in the right column. Is this a deficit or is this an addition? And so Romans chapter 6, Paul is explaining this idea of the crucified life. I want to read a larger section of Scripture if you can bear with me this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, is the answer. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk... Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Here's the word, verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. I know that's an expanded passage of Scripture, but I wanted, to, wanted you to hear Paul's logical reasoning and his explanation of what it means when he says, I am crucified with Christ. That means that he recognizes that on that cross, not only were our sins Paid for by Christ, but our sin nature was crucified with Christ. There was a literal freeing for the believer at the cross. A freeing from sin. So that sin no longer has dominion. Sin no longer has the same power on me that it used to have. I'm dead to it in some respect. This is... This is the philosophy that is central to Paul's understanding of the Christian life. You say, Paul, how do you live the Christian life? What's your philosophy of living the Christian life? He would say something like Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I don't live it the way I used to live it in the flesh. Now I live it by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, I mean that my old nature was crucified with Christ on that cross. And I have to reckon myself to be dead indeed to sins. I have to add it up in the right column. I have to compute it the right way. I have to factor it into my daily life. Paul regularly taught this to other Christians. Paul is saying that you and I need to properly calculate what happened on the cross. It wasn't just Jesus dying on the cross. I died with Him. My old nature was crucified with Him. Not only was Jesus nailed to the cross, but so was that old sin nature. And by the power of the cross, my old sin nature that once controlled me was put to death, canceled forever. Later on in Romans chapter 6, Paul says, hey, there was a day when you were a servant of sin. You couldn't help but sin because sin was your master. You could not break free from its bondage. But at the cross, those chains were broken. At the cross, the old man died. At the cross, you were set free from the power of God. At the cross, sin lost its diminutive power over you. At the cross, you have been crucified to it. And Paul says, I've got to remind myself of that every single day. I am crucified. I'm crucified. Literally, freeing me from the bondage of sin so that I do not have to let it control me. The old me died on the cross with Christ. You know, there is an aspect of Christianity that seems to have faded in our modern age. But it was the dynamic change that Christ made in the life of a person who got saved. Man, I remember when I was growing up, and even before that, there were stories of people. Well, that guy used to be the town drunk. But we had this evangelist that came to town, and we had revival. And would you believe that old drunk got saved, and he ain't touched a drop of liquor since then? And now he's a deacon down there at that church. Remember those stories? They seem to have faded somewhat. It is not that that people aren't getting saved. But, you know, that emphasis on the fact that there was an old me before getting saved. There's a new me after getting saved. What does this do for me? Well... Let's go back to Galatians and let's allow Paul to explain himself a little further. Let's let the, the author define his terms. He uses this term and he says, I am crucified. What do you mean by that, Paul? What exactly do you mean by saying that you are crucified with cross? Well, in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, the Apostle Paul expands that, fleshes that out a little bit for us. He says in Galatians 5, 24, and they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. What's it mean? It means that the cross kills my selfish, sinful desires. You and I are all born with this prenate nature that we want to please ourselves, we want to latch upon our lust, we want to satisfy our affections, and we are driven by that to some measure in our life. But at the cross, that is put to death. It is crucified. You don't have to be subject to those same sinful desires that you once had. He goes on and he he uses the terminology again in chapter 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, take pride in, celebrate, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. You see, the cross cancels the magnetic attraction of the things of this world. There is an attractiveness to the world. There's there's this acceptance that you and I want. We we place so much on what the world thinks. You know, there's a sociological term for that. It's called hegemony. Hegemony. It is when there is power that is influenced over the culture. Oftentimes it's used when one country will come in and invade another and take control of it, just like the Romans did with the Israelites, and they begin to take on the characteristics of the Roman way of life instead of the Jewish way of life. And so the Jews who lived in the greater Roman Empire, who still held on to their Jewishness, were called Hellenistic Jews because they wouldn't let it influence them. Can I tell you, you and I live in this world that is not, not, not following God but it has fallen into the darkness of Satan and sin but yet it, it, it exercises such influence on you and I that we have this desire that we want to be accepted by it it begins when we're very young and we want to be accepted by the other kids in our class and then it really intensifies when we get into high school and we want to dress a certain way and talk a certain way and be seen a certain way because we don't want to stand out and and appear to be weird like our parents are but can I tell you while you can get a little more resistance from that as you get into adulthood most of us adults are still feeling that pressure of the world and we don't always live the christian life out loud the way that we should because of what our coworkers might think what our professor might think what what somebody else might view as being normal and acceptable And I'm telling you, that that is still happening in the world today. And Paul says, the cross is the solution. At the cross, the world was crucified to me and I to the world. A dead man doesn't care what anybody else thinks. And we are dead with Christ. Through death to self, you are set free from caring what the world thinks about you. If you and I could get a hold of this this one little truth that Paul is trying to give us here today when we say, I am crucified with Christ, we could walk out of our houses tomorrow and not care what anybody else thinks about what we say and what we believe and how we live our lives. We could be free from all of that. And we would be better witnesses for Christ. Now remember, the work has already been done by Christ on the cross. It's all been done. Christ went to that cross. Christ stayed on that cross. Christ took the beating. Christ took the nails. Christ took the wrath of God. Christ said in John nineteen thirty, it is finished. He did all the work. All you and I have to do is reckon it to be so in our own lives. That's it. You don't have to crucify yourself. Oh, I gotta die of to myself today. No, you don't. You were crucified with Christ. Just chalk it up, add it up, put it in the win column. I am crucified with Christ. Step two in drawing near to God through crucifixion is to realize that you're also resurrected with Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2:20, in the second clause, he says, Nevertheless, I live. I am crucified with Christ, but I'm not a dead man standing here. I I, I am living, but the life that I now live, uh, not I, but Christ lives in me. Let me ask you this question. Did Christ just die, or did Christ rise again also? He rose again. He died on the cross. He was crucified on the cross. He took death on the cross. But as Romans 6 says, he did not stay dead. He died once He lives forevermore. So we too have been resurrected to a brand new life. That is distinctly different from the one we used to have. I am crucified with Christ and now Christ lives in me. I am not what I used to be. I am a brand new man. Let me ask you this question. Was Christ's resurrected... And it's not a trick question. Was Christ's resurrected body somewhat different from his old body. Let me give you a few hints. Uh, Mary Magdalene and the disciples on the road to Emmaus they didn't recognize him when he first showed up. Uh, He was able to materialize in a room with the door shut and he was able to vanish out of the sight of people and his post-resurrection body ascended into heaven And it is his eternal body, as I read in Revelation 5, a lamb as it had been slain. And so when we think about that, and we say, okay, we understand that Christ is Christ before the crucifixion, after the resurrection, but there's some sort of dynamic change that took place in his body. The old body died and went to the grave, and what walked out of that grave was a brand new body. Get this. Just because you look the same in the mirror after you get saved does not mean that you are the same. Right, I I got saved October 13th, 1995, October 14th, 1995. I still had red hair, freckles. It was red back then. You see, I looked the same in the mirror. From the outward appearance, I couldn't tell that anything had happened to me. But let me tell you, there was a dynamic change that took place inside of you when you were crucified and resurrected with Christ by faith at the moment of salvation. It was a dynamic change. You changed fundamentally, dynamically, internally, and eternally when you got saved. You are not the same person you used to be. But don't take my word for it. Let Paul explain himself again. He said in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Some translations say new creation. All things are passed away. They are dead and gone. And behold, all things are become new. Was the Bible telling the truth or is it telling us a lie? telling us the truth, then that means that you are not the same person you used to be. The person you were after getting saved is a resurrected person. You were crucified with Christ by faith, and now you have been risen to live the life of Christ. We are now in Christ, whereas we used to be in sin. Christ is now in us. How big of a difference, let me ask you, how big of a difference does a microscopic cancer cell or coronavirus make if it's inside of you? It can do a lot of damage, can it? It can mess up a lot of things. It can change the entirety of your health and your wellness. It can even take your life from you. So just because you can't see Christ in you doesn't mean he's not there, does it? I mean, there's a lot of things that we can't see. But it doesn't mean that they're not there. And so I would argue that if a microscopic cancer cell or coronavirus could have that much negative impact on me, surely the indwelling Christ can have an even greater positive impact on us. Could he not? I mean, this is part of the reckoning when we reckon or calculate that I am crucified with Christ and now Christ now lives in me. That's a dynamic change in my life. By the way, that is what Christ referred to as the abundant life in John 10 when he says, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. What I had before I was crucified was not abundant life It was a death life, it was a dying life, it was a low life, it was a sinning life. But after I was crucified and risen with Christ by faith, now I have an abundant life, I have a living life, I have an eternal life. I have a Christ life. That is, if we don't frustrate it by our foolishness. That is, if we don't go back to living the way we used to live just because that's the old habits that we have. So the Christian life is nothing less than the outliving of the indwelling Christ by faith. It is just letting Christ live out of me. He's already there. He's already done all the work. He's already canceled the sin. He's already crucified the old man. He's already broke the bonds of chains that held me in my sinfulness. All I have to do is reckon Him to be so. All I have to do is Turn him loose to lead my life. This brings us to step three, which is reciprocated. Notice how Paul makes this statement. It's an independent clause, but it ties it together. The third clause, and the life which I now live in the flesh. I'm still in this body of flesh. I still have these these temptations. I still have these shortcomings. But I live it by the faith Of the Son of God, the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Understand this, we are simply reciprocating the love and the life that Christ gave to us on the cross. The cross is the greatest display of the love of God that was ever given on planet Earth. It is where God Himself says, I give Myself for you and to you. And He dies and gives up His life's blood and His last breath. And He shows how much He loves you. And the Bible goes on to say, we love Him because... reciprocation. You didn't love God first. In fact, I would argue that you would not love God if He had not loved you. The Bible says we love Him because He first loved us. I don't know about you, but I've learned that reciprocating love is the easiest way to love. If somebody else loves me, Man, I can love back good. It's the people who don't seem to like me that I have trouble loving. How much does God love you? The crucifixion. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You know what it points to? Calvary. It's a Calvary love. It's a crucifixion love. It's a love that is willing to give up everything for you, even when you know you don't deserve it. The crucifixion is an exchange of lives. Christ's life for ours and our life for Christ. It's just reciprocated. And He already took the first step. He cleared the greatest distance. He came to earth. He paid for our sins. He died on the cross. He proved it. It's not like the old high school angst. Does she like me? Does she not like me? Should I ask her out? Is she going to reject me? I think she likes me. I don't know. Man, that's that's stressful. I'm so glad my relationship with Christ is not that way. He loves me. And there is no He loves me not. All I have to do is return his love. It's a reciprocation of life and love. He loved me and he gave himself for me. The love of Christ that was displayed at the crucifixion is the engine that powers this sacrificial exchange. Listen to how Paul explained it also in 2 Corinthians 5. I told you he talked about this stuff a lot. In 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, he said this, For the love of Christ constrains us. If we had, this, if we had time this morning, I'd get one of the guys up here and I'd put him in a full Nelson. That, that's, that's constraining love. It, it is the idea that I am controlled by something. Something has power over me. And Paul says, the love of Christ constrains us. Why? Because we thus judge, or we estimate, that if one died for all, then all were dead. Huh. If Christ died for all of us, then we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. I was a dead man. You were a dead woman, eternally dead, headed toward an eternal grave in hell But he goes on to say this, And that he died for all, that they which live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. It only makes sense that if my life came from Christ, my eternal life, my Christ life, my abundant life, then I shouldn't selfishly live it for myself, but I should live it for Christ. We must die to ourselves to exchange lives with Christ. We need to die to self-centeredness. We need to die to selfishness. We need to die to self-promotion. We need to die even to self-preservation. Let me tell you, so much that we do every single day is motivated by self. This is what I want. This is what I desire. This is what I don't like. This is how it makes me feel. I don't like when it makes me feel that way. This is how I'm going to respond because I don't like how that made me feel. We got to die to all of that. That's not the Christ life. The Christ life is reckoning ourselves to be dead already. I'm crucified with Christ. I have no self-interest. I'm a dead man who was given life by Christ. And the least that I can do is give that life back to him. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. And the only way that we'll be motivated to do this is by looking at the cross. It's the only way. You and I need to look at the cross every single day. We need to spend some time in prayer. We need to spend some time in scripture. We need to spend some time meditating on the cross and the crucifixion of Christ every single day. And as we do, we will see his love for us. We'll see his sacrifice, that he sacrificed everything concerning himself, just so that he could give us his life. And when we do that, you know what comes natural? Lord, I give you my life today. It's not mine to live. It's yours to live. You live through me. You take me where you want me to go. You, you give me the words you want me to say. You, 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 you give me the thoughts you want me to think. Lord, let it all be for you. And so I ask you this morning, won't you give him your life today in complete surrender? I mean, not holding any of it back. That's what he did at the crucifixion, and that's what we're to do. Would you bow with me? So our heads are bowed and eyes are closed for just a moment. I want to take a minute here to talk to you. I want to ask you, have you been saved? Have you accepted Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for your sins? Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, that you would go to heaven? Or do you have some doubts about that? If you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm just not sure about that. I mean, I believe a lot of things about Jesus, but I'm not sure that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. Would you just slip your hand up while nobody's looking around? Anybody in the room this morning? Nobody's going to embarrass you, but I want to pray for you because this is the most important decision you'd ever make in life. Anybody here today that would say, pray for me, Pastor, I'm not saved. Just slip that hand up. How about you, Christian? You've, you've applied the cross to your life for salvation, but have you surrendered your life to him? Have you exchanged lives with Christ? Are you, are you living in complete surrender to him, or, or are you allowing your own self-interest to guide you? Can you say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. If you're here today and you know that you're saved, but you also know that you haven't surrendered everything, today would be a great day to do that. Just imagine where you would be if Christ hadn't surrendered his all on that cross for you. Dear Lord, I do pray and ask that you would help each of us to be surrendered Christians. I pray that we would live out this principle of the crucifixion, recognizing, computing ourselves to be Dead indeed to sin realizing that that old man was put to death that we are not the same person that we used to be we might have the same haircut and the same clothes but we do not have the same nature dwelling inside of us may we allow that new nature to lead may we allow that Christ life in us to be the life that we live Lord I pray and ask that you would help us to draw near by the crucifixion and I pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. If you would stand with.